You are listening to inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary stuff. Welcome to the Doolanders. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Welcome, Doolanders, to episode number 16. How are you, Nick? I'm good, thanks, Blake. How are you? I am fantastic. Let's talk about boyhood dreams. Yeah. What was yours? Young fella, you know, six, seven, rolling around the streets, the paddocks, the parks, the ovals of Bendigo. What did you want to do? Uh, It was all cricket in those days, in the early days, uh, until I moved to Melbourne uh, in the boarding house. It very quickly became football and the Hawthorne Football Club. So a lot of practising from the angle uh, kicking that last goal at an acute angle, yeah, uh, for banana or from a long way out, yeah. Um, practiced that a lot of times. How yeah. about you? Yeah, I had two dreams. I first up was again Hawthorne Footy Club on the oval with my mates, you know, counting down the last seconds of a, a grand final. Me, big Mark, big pack Mark, bristling, you know, fending off three or four opponents. And then banging it straight through the guts, um, and that, and, and opening the bowling for Australia. Uh, tragedy struck struck down early uh, throughout my teams. Throughout my teams, um, by a clear lack of talent, mm. uh, and <laughs> never got there. But anyway, I reckon there were so many boyhood, childhood girls dreaming about sport and saying. I'm going to make it one day. Do you ever think about it to this day? Oh, listen to the crowd roar. There is 23 seconds left in this 2020 grand final. We've got the Hawthorne Football Club favourites all year up against the Cats. The boundary umpire throws the ball in. The Ruckman tap it down. Oh, look at Devita swoop upon this loose ball. He is absolutely flying. He sees the veteran Collins down in the forward line. He bangs it on the boot. It's a massive torpedo. Here comes Collins. He's lost two of his three triple team. He's charging out of the forward line. Collins! It's an absolute screamer! the siren. Hawthorne down by three. The old stage of Collins. 1,560 goals to his name. But all of them count for not if he misses this one. This is the one he's been waiting for. The crowd is cheering him on. He's lining up. Here it comes. The traditional approach we've come to like from Collins. The awkward swagger. Let's go. The ball. Here we go. Great ball drop. The ball. It's heading towards goal. It's out of bounds on the full. <laughs> what? What a disastrous way to end his career. 556 games. No premierships. That's weird. No. No, I never, th- never think about it. Probably wouldn't have worked out very well. Who have we got on this episode? <laughs> so this week we have the CEO of the Western Bulldogs, Amit Bates. What do you think we'll get out of this episode, Nick? I think our listeners, you, our Doolanders, will find that perhaps it's not all glitz and glam in the sports and entertainment industry, even though it definitely looks like that from the outside. And also one of those things that um, 
it's a little hard to gauge from the outside is who actually leads a football club. Is it the CEO? Is it the president? Is it the coach? Because you often have three different types of personalities in all of those roles uh, performing different parts of the tasks. So um, it's really insightful into that. And also given it is the, uh, the lockdown period uh, globally, the AFL's migrated itself all the way up to Queensland and they're in a hub. So we're actually talking to Amit. We're in Melbourne. He's uh, up in the hub. In the hub in mm. Queensland, which is quite amazing in itself. So it's a really uh, amazing little time capsule we've, uh, we've created here. So here is Amit Baines pursuing his passion for sport. Blake, do you like stories of people doing? I love stories of people doing, Nick. Well, if you out there like stories of people doing and you want us to make more stories of people doing, then like this podcast, subscribe, and tell your mates because the more people we have listening, the more episodes we can make, and that's better for everyone out there who's doing or wants to do. And as Arnold would say, do it. I thought he said I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, mate. Welcome to the Doodlanders. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks, Blake. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. Nick, great to have you with us. <laughs> Thanks, Blake. Always good to be here. Welcome, mate. Hello, Nick. Great to uh, reunite with you. Yeah, absolutely. You're looking well. And not in a jumper. We're in jumpers here in Melbourne. Now, mate's uh, somewhere sunny. Yeah, on, on the Gold here. Coast currently, so a, a bit warmer. So, mate, you are the... Uh, you, I reckon you've got one of the most coveted positions or roles um, in the in the country. You are the CEO of the Western Bulldogs, uh, the Mighty Dogs, uh, the Scraggers. Uh, there's a bunch of different names for the, the footy club. Tell us, what does the, the CEO of the Western Bulldogs actually do? Yeah, well, there's a, a number of ways in which you can answer that question, some probably more humorous than others. Uh, I, I am very fortunate. Um, we'll, we'll talk through, I suppose, a number of things during this podcast, but love my football, so to, to hold a role like this is truly humbling and, and gratifying. Um, football clubs these days run like small businesses, yep. so clearly you have football as your core product, and um, you know that's the point of difference to... To selling widgets, I suppose, in a in a sales type company, um, but we still have a finance department, a media department, uh, a people department, and all the usual functions that you would have in a corporate organisation. It's just that obviously the football side of things is um, really a, a large portion of, of why we exist. So, um, you know, day to day can can vary greatly. At, at the Western Bulldogs, we essentially have two. Uh, broad arms to, to what we do. One is the football club itself, and, and through that we put out four teams across a normal year, an AFL team, AFL women's team, uh, a VFL men's team and a VFL women's team. Um, but separate to that, we also have a community foundation, which is a separate entity but a wholly owned subsidiary of the football club. And through that, the club for, for many decades now has run programs through the inner west and these days, Western Victoria around men's and women's health, youth leadership and social inclusion. So it's a pretty um, broad remit in that sense. And clearly uh, a, lot, a lot of key people uh, across the club are responsible for each of the elements of that. But it's a, it's a very exciting job and a very rewarding job. 
And you are, um, thank you for that. And you are joining us from um, sunny Queensland at the moment. And uh, obviously there's a, there's a reason for that. Could you take us back? Um, obviously the world changed a number of months ago. Uh, COVID-19 dropped in our laps and changed the way that um, we live and work. Uh, tell us the, the moment that, that the news hit the Western Bulldogs and hit your desk and what it meant for, you know, how you had to reshape what you do, not only you as an individual, but that you as a, a club. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'd like to start out by actually acknowledging this is obviously a global issue. Um, it's been a massive issue for Australia. Um, it's a health crisis, first and foremost. And, and from that, obviously, there have been a number of economic challenges that have emerged. Um, I'll, I'll obviously answer the question in the prism of football, but I think it's important to, to acknowledge that um, and know that we're no different to, to many other industries and, and people as well. Um, but yeah, look, it was, a, it was a shock for everyone. I think even talking about that period through January and, and early February, I don't think there was a recognition in Australia, let alone within our industry, that um, the, the coronavirus and what was occurring overseas was going to come to Australia. And if it did, it was going to wreak the sort of havoc that it continues to do, particularly in Victoria. Um, we, we got maybe a week out from the season and, and that's when um, there, were, there was some uncertainty starting to creep in, um, you know, which at first was, uh, will this actually have an impact on whether we can have a full crowd? And, and for us, that was massive. We were scheduled and ultimately did play Collingwood round one Friday night, our most uh, commercially lucrative game of the season in, in normal times. You know, Collingwood's a, a great opponent to have as an away team, given Collingwood fans and their propensity to, to show up. Um, so we'd, we'd been really um, looking forward to that game in many ways. And I suppose after a uh, disappointing loss in the finals to play someone like Collingwood first up was, was also exciting. Not that the result went to script. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and then as the week, yeah, it was, it was a bit, bit disappointing on many levels. Uh, but then as the week um, rolled on, it was a question of whether we would have any crowds at all. And, um, and then even a question on whether the season would go ahead. And there were some really... Um, pained and pointed conversations, I suppose, particularly within AFL House around that scenario. We did go ahead and, and we played on Friday, albeit with no crowd. And, and it was unbelievably eerie, I think, not only to normally have the crowds in round one and the excitement that, that builds for a game like that, particularly between two teams that have played finals the previous year, um, but to be at Marvel Stadium, and, and I was lucky enough to be there that night, and to have the roof open uh, as... That was the only way in which the game could be played at that venue, um, given the restrictions around uh, closed venues and, and, and it being indoors, uh, technically, if the, if the roof was shut. And to have rain falling, but knowing there was a roof at the venue, but it wasn't in operation, made it um, e even more eerie, I, I suppose. And then fast forward through to Sunday early afternoon and, and the round was still going. In fact, it was midstream in one of the games the AFL announced that the season was going to be suspended at the end of that day. And um, I think for all of us, there was, um, you know, the, the shock that necessarily creeps in around announcements like that. Um, but then, like we've all grappled with this year, the uncertainty of what that means on, you know, every level commercially is a big one. But then, you know, the season itself, your people, um, the business, anything you can think of. So... As the man in charge, like, what, what was your, what was your, your thought process? Like, 
you know, you do you just become right? There's a there's a, a large list of things to do here, um, and you become you know super pragmatic. Do you do you grab the troops together? Yeah, what what are you doing in such a unique um, situation like that? Yeah, I think the the first thing is really, um, and given the magnitude of that announcement, just the shock of how quickly things evolved and and to get to that point. And then, um, as you say, there there becomes a bit more of the solution-driven approach, you know, well, how do we navigate this? I think one of the the great things, and it's continued on and still has continued on, has been the collaborative nature of these conversations. So the AFL's obviously played a massive role as... um, the key stakeholder for the game and, and, and really governing our approach to things. But even with the clubs where there's necessarily a really hard edge to our competition and, and the way we like to one-up each other, um, that, that's been parked off-field for, for most issues right. as we've grappled with the same issues. And I think that that's given us all a lot of comfort. Um, what I would say, though, in those initial weeks was... Um, the, the aftershocks. So thinking, you know, you, you processed what had happened, you processed what approach was now required and you felt like, okay, you are, you've got a real handle on the problem and as daunting as it is, you at least understand it and you're in a position to start addressing it. And then two weeks later, um, something else would happen. So, you know, it, it probably took a good month before there was uh, a dual realisation, one being that the depth of this problem is far greater than we had imagined, even at the outset. And that secondly, to get through the balance of this year and maybe forever now, from a business point of view, you need to to be really open-minded about what can change. And then, you know, as all of the buzzwords have emerged this year, be flexible, be adaptable, pivot, transition. New, you know, new you normal. Word. Yeah. Yeah, all of those, but essentially having a a mind that's open to the change and being able to adjust to it in in a quick time. Great. Hey, look, we'll come back to to this, but uh, love to talk uh, more, I guess, specifically about you. Um, So like a lot of our Doolanders guests, you, uh, you found yourself growing up in regional Victoria. Is that right? I did, and that's where uh, Nick and, and myself and our families have known each other for um, many, many years. Grew up in Bendigo, born and raised, and um, still very much consider myself a, a Bendigo person, albeit haven't lived there for many years, and, and my parents have lived in Melbourne for many years. I think it's just the the connection that you have, and I think even in times like this where you're navigating so much uncertainty and difficulty, your mind wanders back to simpler times, and um, some of those moments that you really enjoyed and, and cherished, and, and certainly for me, Bendigo and growing up there was one of those. And was um, sport a big, big part of your life? Footy a big part of your life? Yeah, it was a huge part. Um, I, I think growing up in regional Victoria in, in um, those times, so for me, you know, in, in the eighties uh, and, and probably for time before that, and a bit of time after that, um, you know, sport was. A centre point of the community so you'd play football in winter and cricket in summer and a few other things here and there but essentially the the local clubs um, were the lifeblood of the community and, and the way in which people connected and um, you know really had that sense of uh, purpose and, and belonging um, and for me as well my father who migrated here from India in the in the 70s um, fell in love with footy from his first year in the country and he certainly passed that down to me, um, which 
um, you know, isn't always the case with, with migrant families. It can be a little bit hit and miss, but I suppose given where I'm sitting now, I'm really grateful that Dad, you know, loved footy and, and passed it on. He was, uh, or still, he's a Hawthorne supporter, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He is a bit more troubled this year than he has been in the past. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he he uh, still loves the Hawks and doesn't miss a game, doesn't get to many games in person these days, but does watch. So you grew up in Bendigo and um, family friends of uh, Nick and the Devitus family. Did you ever take, how many hangers did you take over the top of Nick um, as, a, as a kid or was he, was he a bit too young to play alongside you? Um, that's a good question. I don't think I have a great recollection of that. I think in, if I look at my football skill set over my time, taking hangers hasn't been a part of it. <laughs> right, um, okay. Not unless I've got a prop to jump off in the first instance. Yep. Um, but no, we certainly... Maybe when I was the little kid running around. <laughs> yeah, well, we certainly had, uh, like all kids growing up, football, cricket, you know, when you go to each other's houses, always always some sort of ball game on the go. Yeah, yeah. So um, grew up in Bendigo and... You, you, your mum and dad worked pretty hard to, um, I guess, afford you a, a, an education. And in year nine, you, um, you headed off to boarding school. Yeah, I did. I did. And yeah, as you say, mum and dad um, weren't the, the wealthiest people, um, but worked incredibly hard and um, made some conscious decisions, I suppose, about saving money for private school education for myself and my sister in lieu of doing other things uh, for themselves or the family, I suppose. And yeah, headed down the highway, um, which uh, was a great experience. Had four years at boarding school. I think the first six months were um, difficult, particularly being from a a family and again, that stereotype multicultural family where um, the mum would spoil the kids and particularly the son, uh, which at the age of 42, probably still happens a bit <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. when when I allow it. Uh, so having grown up in a household where, you know, in, as a very simple example, the food you would eat was quite varied and a raft of different spices and flavours to what you consume to then going to boarding school and um, being served up some pretty uh, standard fare, I think that combined with the absence of home was challenging for the first six months. Talk us through your memory of Chicken Kiev's. Yeah, uh, Chicken Kiev uh, is one dish that I'll never eat again. And in fact, since finishing school, have uh, steered clear of. I think just the memories of the way it uh, was presented, um, the smell of it, and then certainly the taste of it. I think I've, I'm on record as saying that um, if you lined up the, the five best Michelin chefs in the world and they each prepared their version of Chicken Kiev, um, I still wouldn't eat it. <laughs> it was also an occupational hazard because if you cut it in the wrong way, you'd get some... Um Whatever that inside was, the butter straight in the eye. Oh, yeah, it was butter, but it was multicoloured butter and, and dew as well. So I don't know what was going on there. Um, apart from not loving the, the culinary delights of, of boarding school, as you were moving through high school, were you, did you have a clear idea of, from a career perspective, where you were headed and, and what you wanted to do? Not specifically. I think going back to the reference to my parents, I certainly understood the value of working hard and, and just doing your best um, at, at whatever you were doing and, you know, that sense of full application. Um, and then also perhaps a sense of um, what I would now term as gratitude, which I wouldn't have necessarily reflected on as a child, but, you know, mum and dad have sacrificed a lot, so you want to make the most of these opportunities. Um, it, it was really, you know, probably the end of year 11 going to year 12 that I started to form a bit more of an idea about what that might be and um, the interest of uh, studying law and became 
becoming a lawyer surfaced. I think you have all of those um, residual desires, you know, if you played a bit of sport that you might ascend to uh, the professional ranks. Um, but that, that was clear for me that that wasn't going to happen. So it was more then about the academic side of things. So at what point, though, did you sort of realise or get told elite sport's not going to be the path for you? Um, Is that what happened? Uh, probably not. I reckon part of it in terms of the playing side is I just enjoyed playing um, and was probably a bit lazy. So um, I did uh, have a reasonable uh, schoolboy level career at um, at school and was in some TAC Cup squads um, in Bendigo. But when I came to Melbourne, I was just really intent on playing um, playing first footy, so good standard but just doing that and not really pursuing the, the TAC Cup side of things and, and just being a bit lazy, really. I just did what I needed to do to be able to play at that level without exerting myself. Um, yeah, everyone remembers you as being really lazy. That was it, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but also then, yeah, the school side of things. Um, you know, I had, had an interest and an aptitude for different things, so I think ultimately made a decision myself before anyone would have made it for me anyway to, to say that this was more my go. So you, you decided to pursue law, headed off to uni. Um, where did uh, where did that degree lead you to? Yeah, so I studied at uh, Monash University and, and did law and um, banking finance as my second degree. And for a, for a clear period, even though um, I just said that you know law became a fixation in my final year of school through uni, I actually thought that I might. Have, practice the finance component of things rather than the legal side. Um, but ultimately, yeah, did, did five years at Monash and then was fortunate enough to get a job at Minter Ellison uh, in the city, um, which in those days as well, uh, um, and I might still be the case, when you're studying law, you end up getting your um, graduate position at the end of your penultimate year of study. So actually going to your final year of uni, knowing you've got your job locked away. So um, you don't, I mean, some people do, I suppose. You don't drop right yeah. off because um, your, your marks and transcript will still get uh, provided to your uh, employer um, as they will become. Uh, but it does it does allow you to have a bit of fun. So I still remember that uh, summer period being a lot of fun where you, you still had a year of uni to go, but you knew you had a job locked away. Maybe take the foot off the pedal a fraction and have a bit of fun. Yeah, certainly become a bit more familiar with uh, different social aspects of the uni, and I was I was playing football for the uni team at the, at that time as well. So the added social layer it was the the not the Notting Hill Hotel at Clayton um, got a great workout over many years. Yeah, I, I have frequented uh, frequented the not on a many occasions. I went to uh, to Deakin, uh, what was Rusden back in the day. So. Um, yeah, with a whole bunch of thespians. Uh, so, yeah, that was a bit of fun. Um, what a great spot. So you, you're headed into Minters and um, as you entered into the, that part of your career, what was the thought process? Was it, you know, I'm, I'm going to head down um, this path, you know, th- this is the career for me? What, what was your, uh, your take at that point in time? Yeah, I think even though I had settled on pursuing the legal side of my study, I think there was a part of me that always felt that I wanted to be, um, you know, in the business world, whatever, you know, it's a very, really broad and vague term, but in the business world, more so than the legal world. Um, but also knew from 
some family friends and others who had studied law or family friends who were lawyers that getting the grounding that you get from your first few years as a lawyer in terms of um, you know the way in which you approach things analytically you problem solve communication you know both written and verbal there are a lot of life skills that would be really honed yeah. in, in those first few years of legal yeah. practice so I think that was a tipping point for me going into law and then subsequently discovered um, albeit only through limited exposure, um, the world of sports law. Um, and then, you know, some light bulbs uh, flicked on around, wow, you could actually be a lawyer for the rest of your life, but do it in a sporting context and, and work for a lot of the organisations that um, you might otherwise have chosen to work for directly. And um, so at, at that time, when you, you know, discovered that there was an opportunity to um practice your trade within sport, did you directly pursue those opportunities um, whilst at Mentors uh, or where, what, where did that thought process take you? Yeah, it did. Um, I think part of it was then trying to get uh, exposure to more sports law work right. whilst being yep. at Minters, um, which I found difficult just by virtue of the area of practice I was in and, and Minters didn't necessarily have a dedicated sports law focus like other firms um, did at yep. the time. Uh, but certainly... Um, during that period, I was at Minters for five years, and I think it was during that period I applied for um, two or three different roles within the sporting industry, legal roles, uh, the AFL, uh, Cricket Australia and Racing Victoria, and owing to um, different uh, limitations, I suppose, uh, for me as compared to the ultimate uh, successor in those roles, I missed out. They got to the last two and three sort of in all of those cases and, and found that um, quite dispiriting in the sense of, oh, well, I've missed the boat here and um, let's look at a, a different alternative. Why was that a feeling of missing the boat? Did it feel like you had to do it at that point in time? or Yeah, I think immaturity, basically, just thinking that here are, here are the gilded opportunities to get in at the level that you're at now or thereabouts. You know, in, in a couple of cases, it was probably a fraction junior compared to the successful applicants, but just thinking that this is the window and... Um, Mistakenly in some respects, but I think it also holds true in others, um, the, the thought of that if I don't get in at this point, it's going to be a lot harder down the track, both from crossing industries when you're more senior, um, but also secondly, having a perception, which has probably been justified, that uh, as amazing as it is working in sport, it's not as lucrative a uh, uh, career pathway as, as working in the corporate world. So getting to a point in your career where you go, well, is it actually fiscally responsible to uh, to change jobs? And what sort of age were you when you were applying for those jobs and had those thoughts? Uh, oh, early early to mid twenties, sort of somewhere between twenty three to twenty five, I think. Right. Okay. And so, knowing what you know now, what would you advise people who are in that sort of age bracket, saying, you know, and thinking, I've got to get on this boat now? Yeah. Knowing oh, what you know now, what would you advise? Be patient. Um, I think in life, whether it's a sporting industry or not, my absolute philosophy now is to really go after the right role at the right time. I think it's actually those confluence of events. So the role's got to be right for you, um, but it's also got to be the right time of, of your career to, to make the move. And I think the fallacy with sport and probably entertainment more broadly from people outside of the industry is that it's sexy and glamorous all of the time and um, you know you should get in at all costs I think for me part of my journey and, and maturity in terms of my career progression has been focusing on 
aspects of a job that I really enjoy and then trying to marry up you know roles that actually deliver that because you know even within a football club and going back to Blake's original question um, you know pre-COVID we're sort of a mid-range club with um, excluding um, consultants and contractors a, a staff of close to 120 people um, and you know there are very very different jobs within that so also having a clarity around what you you want to do because um, the worst thing is Going into something um, when you're not fully invested in it um, just makes it miserable for you and um, obviously not great for your employer either. Yeah. So how did you go from uh, Minters, then you had a stint at Toyota, yeah. um, and going from those um, those jobs you applied for and were un- unsuccessful with, how did you go then getting a big break a few years later? Well, I think Toyota, um, to just focus on that for a moment, was a pivotal component of that as well um in my mind as i said uh i always wanted to move into the the business world to use that broad term again and um probably having been a lawyer you know probably a a byproduct of my upbringing as well um, a bit more risk averse so um didn't take the full leap went into a, a legal role at toyota australia but obviously a lot more business centered as compared to a, a law firm where you're advising on a discrete aspect of a discrete matter, you're involved in projects from start to finish. And Toyota was then and is now still the preeminent rights holder for sport in the country. Um, AFL, obviously, it's been the major partner for, I think, close to 20 years and a raft of other sports um, clubs and, and athletes as well. So it gave me a really good opening into doing a lot of that work and, and getting the requisite experience and having the opportunity, even say in the AFL context, to be on the other side of negotiations with um, the key AFL executives as well. So, um, you know, it's also getting the, the ability to um, build a reputation through through those means. Um, so that was the, the Toyota experience. And then to answer your question, um, again, I, I think whilst you, you've got to go after the right roles at the right time, uh, you also need the luck to fall your way in terms of where you're at when some of these opportunities come up as well. And St Kilda had just lost the... Um, the replayed grand final in 2010 and were undergoing a bit of a restructure with respect to how they administered different parts of their business and list management was one of those. And then then CEO Michael Nettlefold basically reshaped that list management function and put as some of the key criteria for the next person coming in to have more of a legal corporate background to essentially um, bring more governance and, and a robust process to the way in which contracting was done, the salary cap. There was also a recognition of um, what has continued to be a pretty evolving landscape for the AFL, where the regulatory framework around a lot of football matters has grown. Um, but then have someone, you know, given the size of our business, uh, have someone who has the capacity to also provide sort of broader legal support to the club. So at, at that time, um, I got a a call from Adrian Anderson, who was working at the AFL at the time, who also knew through um, having played football together for a brief period. Um, And he advised me of of that role and whether I'd be interested. And and if so, he'd put my name forward because I think outside of the normal recruitment process, as as typically happens in every industry, St Kilda had gone to the AFL to to look for recommendations. So um, went through the process and was very fortunate that in terms of the, the very specific criteria that St Kilda were looking for, it meant those that were in the industry that had um, more experience that they'd forgotten about um, than I had in, in direct 
um, industry terms, didn't have the legal corporate background that I had and vice versa for those that were coming from the corporate legal end, they didn't have the breadth of um, sport work experience that I had as well. So uh, it, it fell very nicely and yeah, it kicked off uh, just under 10 years ago, the, the journey that I'm on now. And when you reflect back on um, the moment that you, you found out you had the gig, like how how chuffed were you? Like I imagine, you know, having been a you know a young lad running around uh, with a blues jumper on in Bendigo and kicking the footy, and to actually know that you're going to you know spend your days um, working in a footy club must have been pretty exciting. Oh, it was incredibly exciting. Um, probably didn't understand the, the depth of the opportunity properly until I'd been in the role for a year uh, or so. But, you know, just the, the notion of going to work in footy was unbelievable. And, and I think even when you forget about it on an individual level, you know, you reflect and you move on. Um, the fact that, you know, my friends and family knew how much I love sports sports, you love sport, but wanted to work in sport. I think there was a lot of positive reinforcement that came from conversations around that time and, and subsequently that continued to reinforce to me how grateful I should be. Um, I think the biggest uh, challenge was working out how um, to, to let Carlton go after 30, <laughs> uh, 30 odd years of passionate and, and sometimes, if you ask my wife, illogical support. How did you have that conversation? How did you reconcile that in your mind? It's, you just had to, right? I suppose. Yeah, well, well, you do naturally. I think I think one of my um, key characteristics is is loyalty, yep. and and once you're in that environment where you're working for an organisation, but even more than that, you're, you're working closely with key staff, the coach and players. Um, you're naturally invested, not only professionally but personally. Um, but it probably took, you know, I'd say conservatively 12 to 18 months before I let Carlton go and just focused on St Kilda as opposed to had two teams. Yeah, right. um, and it's interesting in football clubs now, if you if you look at it, a lot of people that work in the, the administrative side of the club will still have two teams because um, they're not necessarily as connected to the athletes in the day-to-day football. So they barrack for the club that they're working at, but they still have um, their, their other team as well, whereas in the football side, it's it's all yeah, in really. Yeah, their own a choice. Um, I'd be really interested to, to hear, like, when you walked in, and and maybe it is a year down the track, or maybe maybe it was obvious straight away. Like, you know, what struck you about working in a football club that was perhaps unique and different than um, working in a you know a corporate organisation? Yeah, I, I think some of those thoughts were formed uh, at an early stage. Um, my, my first memories of of you know just prior to starting and certainly starting were ones of apprehension and anxiety, you know, someone coming from the corporate world into a football club environment and having a role that was predominantly football focused and, and physically sat in the football department. Um, you know, you had uh, Ross Lyon as the coach that year who, um, you know, has a pretty fearsome reputation and you're wondering how you you might be perceived as well. So there were those thoughts which... Um, I must say on that front, we're put to bed pretty early. Um, you know, Ross uh, was amazing to me and, um, you know, really supported the club's appointment and, and worked closely and, and well with me. And um, I think that would go for everyone that I worked with, even having um, more uh, senior football people in terms of experience reporting to me as well. Um, so, you know, not only someone who'd 
come from outside of football as their new boss, but someone who was a lot younger as well. And, and, and those people, and one in particular, Tony Elshaw, who I worked with for seven years, uh, were just remarkable in the grace they afforded me to get my head around things and, and just be supportive. And, and equally, I think from my end, um, it was taking an approach where you, you need to have confidence in yourself. That's why you're appointed to the role. Um, but to never assume that you knew how everything operated because, um, you know, it was false. So that, that was a big part. Um, but again, I'll keep answering my own question and then coming back to your question. So apologies. Right. Um, but, but to the specific question you asked, I think I was um, amazed at, at two things. One, the level of excellence from a high performance point of view and, and what goes into preparing a team and, and individual players. So having the opportunity to watch in close quarters players like Nick Rewalt, Lenny Hayes and Nick Del Sano and you know, St Kilda had a lot of great players and see what they put in each week. You know, you you had little wonder that they were the players that they were. Um, but then having coming from a corporate environment where Toyota Australia is, is one of the biggest and best companies in the world, obviously suffered a bit through the automotive decline, um, but unbelievably process-driven, structured, rigorous, um, to then come to a, a what is ostensibly a, a sporting club, um, the, the lack of sophistication in, in terms of some of the other elements of the business um, was quite startling as well. So in saying that, I reckon the industry over the last decade has improved greatly and, and part of the reason for that um, has been a, a willingness to look further afield as well rather than just recycle the same people over and over. Yeah, and look, you're from an outsider looking in, like you certainly... Um, you get the impression that there's a whole lot of a whole lot more focus on you know business methodologies and frameworks that have been pushed into clubs to um, I don't know help help uh, performance perhaps from a business perspective than you know was was there perhaps ten to fifteen years ago. So you your journey you were you're at the Saints for uh, was it nearly six or seven years and. Um, you moved up, you know, pretty quickly into the the C, COO role. Um, when, when you reflect on, you know, that appointment, um, again, another step in in the direction to where you are today. How, how did that all come about? Yeah, obviously, a, a key stepping stone to my current role. Like I said earlier, I think it's also having um, those fortunate turn of events at different times, and and certainly another thing. Um, that's critical in anyone's career progression is having people believe in you as well. So uh, around um, the early part of 2014, uh, we had a a few changes at the club and Matt Finnis came in as the new CEO of the club, having been the CEO at the AFL Players Association for a number of years. And as uh, a CEO's want, uh, came in, took a look at the business and wanted to change a few things around. And one of those things um, saw me become a, a lead beneficiary, which was to create a new structure, which elevated my role to the chief operating officer role. But importantly, in terms of career progression, had me still maintain responsibilities across football as well as the commercial side of the business, um, which really gave me a great insight into how the whole club ran and and some responsibility in, in shouldering that as well. So. Um, it was a terrific opportunity. One of the, the main projects I worked on the commercial side was returning the club to Moorabbin, um, which was great and, and is great. Um, 
you know, I'd been uh, working out of Seaford where St Kilda was based for seven years, which I think on reflection everyone would acknowledge that whilst the circumstances dictated something needed to be done and they moved, it wasn't wasn't the right decision. Um, so I'd been commuting a fair way down the highway for a number of years and was within about three months of Moorabbin being ready to go, uh, which uh, is only 10 minutes from my house. Um, and then, yeah, got the job at the Bulldogs, so I ended up driving... Um, now from east to west and still commuting around the same time frame but no it was great and seven years at the saints um still got some wonderful friends there and you know they've been very generous to me even when Moorabbin was completed a few months later uh, I was involved in all of the official celebrations and everything else that went with it so yeah it was a great opportunity and, and Matt really believed in me and I think the other part you know I look at it now as a CEO and the way that I interact with my staff, you know, really giving your people meaningful opportunities to develop, you know, on the job development I'm yeah, talking about yeah. and stuff that you could easily do or you could um, be protective of. Um, but, you know, if, if you really want to develop your staff and genuinely give them the opportunities to ascend to CEO roles, you, you need to let go. And, um, you know, Matt, Matt was brilliant for me in that regard and sort of shaped the leader I've become as a CEO. Yeah. And did you feel that that was building over a period of time before you got appointed as COO, that a pathway to CEO or that type of position was something that you wanted to do or you could feel it was building towards that? Um, yeah, it was certainly something I wanted to do. And, and I think you look at it, and, and going back to my answer before around the differences um, in the industry and, and starting, I think I saw some gaps um, around the, the, uh, the corporate slash administrative side of the business and felt that you know there, there were some real opportunities for me to impact in that regard and um, I suppose like anything then once you've worked a number of years in an industry and you can see or, or get a flavour of what a role entails um, you one decide whether it's something you want to aspire to and, and then two periodically work towards um, you know rounding out your skill set and experience to, to achieve it as well which is something I did I reckon after about you know two or three years in the job. So you, at, at that point in time, you felt like you had what it took to, to lead a club as a, in a CEO role? I, I did, as in I could see it coming. I didn't think at that point in time I was ready yeah. to do it, nor had the requisite experience yep. to do it. But um, I, I became confident at that part that I was on the, the pathway towards it um, and that if I continued to um, you know, apply myself to, to use the sort of mentality from a young yeah. age um, and get exposed to the right things that um, ultimately I'd get an opportunity. So let's talk about the, that opportunity. So the doggies go and break a how many year drought in 2016? Uh, 62. Yeah, wow. That's a fair drought. Um, they break that drought in 2016 and then in, in 2017, at the end of 2017, uh, you're appointed as the CEO of Western Bulldogs. How, how did that opportunity arise and um, come to fruition? Yeah, very uh, exciting. I, I um, ironically was at the 2016 Grand Final with Lindsay Gilby, who um, is a celebrated Western Bulldogs yeah, player and yeah. um, who only recently uh, found out he was uh, Indigenous as, as well, which is... Um, is that right? Uh, yeah, which has been a big story this week because it's the third Doug Nichols round in the AFL uh, as well. It is too. Yeah. Um, 
So I was at the Bulldogs and I ended up in the rooms after the game, even more perversely, but that, that's a story for another day, post the 16 grand final. So I didn't quite anticipate actually being in charge of the club 18 months later. Um, yeah, there, there were um, four CEO roles basically vacant at, at the end of 2017. And with respect to the, the Bulldogs, I received an approach um, from Peter Gordon that... Uh, the chair and um, Fiona Magecki, another one of our um, current directors who uh, in her day job is a director at Egon Zender who um, weren't strictly speaking running the executive recruitment um, but through her and her skill set um, were doing it in an informal way yeah um, yeah and, and got put through the process and um, it, it all happened pretty quickly to be honest I had three meetings, um, including a formal presentation in the space of about eight days um, before being offered the job. So it moved incredibly quickly, which um, I, I appreciated. Um, you know, I think going back to some of those processes that I missed out on on an early age, you, you know, you don't forget some of those things. And one of those was, you know, really drawn out, I think, from the time mm. of the last interview to an appointment, or the first interview to the appointment being made was something like three months um, and it and it hangs on you. So yeah, this was great. It was really quick um, and and came to fruition late October. And uh, I stayed on at the Saints for a few weeks to hand things over and, and started the new role in December. And and how does that handover look like? You know, is it when you're in the industry and you you're going from club to club? Is it um, you know you you leave with uh, good grace and 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 their congratulations? How do, like how does that? that all work within the system? Uh, yeah, it doesn't always work like that, but that was certainly my experience. Mm. Um, I, I also felt um, that, you know, over seven years I'd given everything I could to St Kilda and um, that, that was certainly recognised and appreciated. And I think, secondly, the fact that I was leaving for an elevated role as opposed to changing clubs to do the same thing was, was another big part of everyone's um, comfort with it and um, I suppose as, as a reflection on that uh, which tends to be very unusual I ended up working out another four or five weeks um, to, to get a few things handed over and particularly around Moorabbin yeah. given it was at the pointy end of the project so yeah, um, yeah that, they were they were tremendous um, and and then yeah the the Bulldogs um, were equally gracious um, not that they had much of a choice I suppose but equally gracious in letting me work out that period and um, do what I needed to do before starting over there. And when you when you were successful in in, in getting the job, w- was that another point of reflection on you know w- what you'd actually personally achieved? Um, h- how did you feel at that point in time? And you know discussions with your your family and h- how did, how did you feel? Oh, I think that was even a greater sense of that really compared to first getting in the industry and. Mm. Um, it comes back to you know that sense of maturity as well. You actually understand how everything works. You know you've been on your own journey. You know what's really important to you and um, what you've meaningfully aspired to. So as opposed to when you you know to speak from my own uh, perspective, when you're aspiring to things without necessarily knowing everything that's required, both on the journey and, and then once you're in that role, you know getting the the job at the Bulldogs was more satisfying because you knew what was required to get to this point and, and you also had a sense of the, the magnitude of the role that you were taking on. So um, I still, you know, I'm two and a half years in, a bit bit more to be three years in December. Uh, I still have those moments all the time um, and, and being up here 
in the hub at the moment. It's an unusual year, clearly, um, but being up here and sitting in, you know, key football meetings, um, you know, you're there um, for, for good reason. But if you let your mind wander at some times to back when you're a, a child and, um, you know, you, you think about working in football to actually be part of those meetings and um, get a real sense of what's going on uh, it is still mind-blowing at, at times. So I've got a question. You, you talked a bit about uh, wanting to work in the business world and typically in the business world, the head poncho is the CEO. Yet you work in an industry where that's, well, from an outsider's perspective, that's a little bit blurred because you've got the public face of the administration, which um, is the, the coach. And then you also have the CEO who's running part of the business or the whole business. And then typically an outspoken president to go along with that. Um, how do you manage those? Because you often, especially in St Kilda when you had Ross Lyon, a big personality, um, Luke Beveridge seems to be a bit more of an understated character. How do you, who, who leads the club? Is it a three-way sort of uh, arrangement or um, how does that actually work? I think that's something that people from the outside don't quite appreciate. Yeah, and I think, I think um, there are elements of truth in, in everything you've suggested. Ultimately, um, the, the buck stops with a CEO around running the organisation, which includes football as, as well as your core product. Um, and, and you live and die by those decisions. Um, to the point you're making, though, you're, you're judged far more directly on the commercial operations of the business than you are the football side, albeit you're still, you know, it, it's, it's still a very large and, and central part of um, the way CEOs get assessed and, and how I get assessed. I think from a coaching perspective, um, on-field results uh, ultimately um, live and die with the coach um, in a public sense. It, it doesn't um, within the club. There's clearly uh, a raft of different considerations that go into whether a team's performing well or not. But the coach takes on that public responsibility for the very reason you suggested, that they are the public face um, by virtue of the way the industry is structured and, and you know the press conferences during the week, which are mandated, the press conferences post-game, which are mandated, um, and, and the very control that they have. Um, football clubs then, in terms of the board governance, aren't different to any other company. Every CEO reports into a board and is answerable to the board. I think where the difference is in the football industry is that, um, and it's why we love the game, there's just so much emotion and passion attached to it that um, you see in, in different instances. And um, you guys are both referenced Hawthorne and um, you know some of the most entertaining moments I get uh, each month uh, um, are seeing what Jeff Kennett's <laughs> written to the members and yeah. some of the language that he's used. So yep. I, I think that that's still very much a personality-driven part of it. And, and um, you know, some boards, as a result, might be a bit more hands-on than others. But that part of the business is still um, not dissimilar to the corporate world. It, it's probably the reconciliation between the, the CEO and the coach. And ultimately, the best-run clubs and the most successful clubs um, have those three people as well as other key people around the business uh, all on the same page, clear on purpose, clear on values and, and clear on, um, you know, uh, 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 targets and KPIs. So just on, I was going to ask you a question around targets and KPIs. So outside of looking in, it looks pretty binary, right? You, you win the premiership. Yep. You, you've hit your success measures. Um, you don't win the premiership. You don't. So, 
so when you when you look at you know the success measures measures for you and um, your organisation, what, what does it look like? Is it is it incremental improvement? Um, what how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a very good question. I, I think just in terms of the premiership part of it, clearly that's what everyone's striving for. But if that were the sole um, determinant of success, then by definition, 17 teams are failing every year. So it, it can't be that binary. Um, I, I think the other element is, like any other business as well, to you know set the most appropriate targets, you need to have a clear and unabashed understanding of where you're at as well. So yeah. even in, you know, if we, if we continue with the performance side of the business and, and use that as the example, um, you know, if you're the Gold Coast Suns and you're basically fielding an under 23 team, um, your legitimate targets for what you might achieve this year are going to be very different to West Coast, who, you know, far more mature team, won a premiership recently um, and, and in that window. So I think that the first step is actually understanding that um, and then, you know, building in what, what are the appropriate targets. I think even in an on-field sense, um, what you're really seeking to do is strive for sustained success and that might be, you know, that might be characterised as top four finishers, knowing that finishing in the top four gives you the best opportunity then to win the premiership that year as opposed to just being single-minded about the premiership. Um, in, in saying that, you know, when, when clubs develop the longer-term strategic plans, they do... Um, talk in, in sexier terms about the number of premierships that they aspire to win and um, I, I think it's important to also at the same time be ambitious and, and not shy away from the fact that that you know in an on-field sense that's exactly what we're all trying to do um, but I think in, in terms of the hard and fast KPIs which are then working backwards uh, um, developing all the steps required to get to there um, it, it can't be that binary yeah yeah and when when like you've been surrounded by you know high performance in a business and sporting sense for you know well over um for 10 years and you know in your career prior to that but when you think about high performance personally so you know for you and me when you're standing there having a shave in the morning and drifting off thinking about this that that and the other like what is what does high performance mean to you and and how do you pursue that how do you invest in you in order to um, meet those high performance goals yeah well I think it it still comes back to having clarity of purpose and, and clarity of direction as well what what are you actually aspiring to do and as we just spoke about that's you know a lot more clear-cut in a performance sense as compared to what some of your commercial targets might be Um but then it's being absolutely uncompromising in your pursuit of those goals as well. And again, that shows up in different ways. It's, it's always easiest to give that the sporting analogy on field. That's obviously doing everything that you need to do from a, um, a training, a strength, a conditioning, a nutrition, you know, all of the requisite components that go into making athletes the best they can be and then having the overarching development, coaching, you know, tactical side to the the game as well to then deliver um, results on field and I don't think it's terribly different off field Um, you know it's characterized a bit differently but it's also understanding what are the things that you need to do um, and and being really 
dedicated and committed in terms of the pursuit of those things. Um, but it's an interesting question, and even within a, a professional sporting club, you know, there's a clear dichotomy between um, what we term perhaps, um, you know, high performance versus elite performance as well, because they are a bit different in um, in, in what you do. Like the professional side is all about being elite and doing the best you can in, in that sense, whereas it's probably a bit more, you know, high performance in the administrative sense where, um, you know, the, the measures aren't as, as black and white, yeah. um, but, but certainly the, the commitment and, and dedication that we're seeking is no different. And for you to be at your best, right, like do you, you know, watch, watch what you eat, train hard, carve out time to learn, um, meditate, spend more time with your family, like, like take us through some of the things that you do because clearly you've been at the top of your game for many, many years. How, how do you, how do you manage to stay that way? Because you, you, you need to be bloody resilient doing what you do. How, how do you manage all of that? Yeah, you do. You don't always get it right, obviously either. Um, I think it's been different, even the way in which um, everyone's had to adjust this year um, has been different. I've struggled at different times. I think for me. Um, sport, playing sport and exercise more generally remains a massive component um, of, of what I've done. And, um, you know, I played footy um, uh, just locally until I was in my 30s as well. So that sense of exercise and training and, and everything else is something that, um, you know, has, has been important and continues to be. Um, but then I think it's it's like you, you reference around family and, and friends. I'm a very social person, so I think one of the challenges I found this year um, was been great to have extended time with the family, and particularly your kids, in a way in which um, I haven't had before. I've got a seven-year-old son and a just-turned-ten-year-old daughter. That's been terrific. But uh, a large um, sense of my energy comes from being around people as well. Yeah. Um, and I've noticed even... You know, having had two stints at the hub um, up here in Queensland and having had some time at home in between, that my energy levels are much higher being in the hub, notwithstanding it's a 24-7 performance environment because you can't escape each other. You're here having meals together. The meetings are in the team hotel. Um, you can get off-site, but you're still limited by the AFL protocols and what you can do. So it's, yep. it's far more intense, um, but I found my own energy has been higher because there's an ability to, to socialise with people um, and, and really connect um, in person compared to what this year's delivered. But um, it, it's something I don't always get right, and um, my wife, uh, Kath, has been brilliant in that regard as well. I think she uh, is the first to see when I'm slipping um, in, in terms of that self-care and it might manifest by being uh, a bit rude with the kids or you know less patient less tolerant whatever the um, the visible signs of it might be but she's always been terrific in in spotting them early um, and and you know getting on my back about being better around some of those things particularly sleep I think is one yeah. that yeah. when I'm really stressed drops off but as we know even from an athlete's point of view um, sleep's the most underrated agent in building strength and resilience yeah yeah so Kath's the real CEO managing your household mate oh no doubt no <laughs> doubt I don't think I'd be able to do uh, a lot of what I've been able to do without her support and, and family support between that so it's also great um, the AFL have done an amazing job this year in keeping the competition going logistically yeah. and their financial support and we're very fortunate that um, Kath and the kids are up here as well at the moment. Fantastic. So, mate, you've been really generous with your time and I'm conscious that you're going to have to get back to 
another meeting in the hub. Um, for all our listeners out there, um, we've heard a lot about what you did and how you did certain uh, things within your career. And you obviously identified early um, in yourself that playing elite sport wasn't what you uh, wanted to do or could do, but you wanted to be involved in sports in some way. What's your advice for people out there looking at anything in their lives? And now is actually a really good time to start for people to reflect on that when they have a bit more time or perhaps their careers are on a bit of hold or something like that. What's your advice to our listeners out there about pursuing an area such as sport or the arts or something like that that they hadn't really considered or they don't know how to get involved with? Um, they might be younger, they might be older. Um, what's a good starting point for them? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the first point of call and, you know, if I look at my own journey and the steps I've gone through is actually being really honest with yourself as to uh, what's important to you and, and what do you really want to do. Um, and that's not just a superficial reflection. It's actually getting an understanding of across the way in your own um, personal life, professional life, what are the things that really excite you and really motivate you to to go that extra mile, um, but then also getting a, a proper understanding of those industries that you might be interested in. So even going back to the sport example, you know, as I said, 120 people at our club, you can work in very different ways. You could be the dietitian or you could be the accountant. Um, you know, it, it caters for a lot of different um, professions within within the one industry. So I think getting that certainty and clarity, um, and and it can also be a bit of you know try before you buy. Um, you know, whether they're through voluntary roles or um, other uh, lowly paid roles where you can get experience and exposure. It may not be at the elite level at the outset, um, but it gives you a flavour of what things might be Um, because ultimately an AFL club um, is really just a a massively beefed up version of a local football club. You know, the, the essence and spirit of what makes a football club great, you know, is no different to where I played um, in, in metropolitan Melbourne to the AFL, that the real core of that is the same. So you can get a you can get a sense of those things, and um, certainly having an opportunity to work at at lower levels in that um, in those capacities, one gives you a bit of insight into what things might be like, albeit you know a limited insight. But secondly, also helps build your own CV and career experience along the way. And I certainly found that a couple of things that I did. Um, including a couple of years of voluntary work with uh, Carlton Football Club were pivotal, one, for me to get a better insight of how a football department actually worked, but secondly, to, to have on my CV, I suppose, as my journey unfolded. Well, mate, uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, as Nick said, you you probably got to get back to uh, rounding up the, the lads uh, in the hub. Hey, best of luck for the rest of the season. You're just outside the eight as we speak. Um how many games do you reckon you need to win to get back in and be amongst it come, I was going to say come September, but it'll be perhaps a little later than that? Yeah, it will. Um, the finals will start probably early early October. I think the last home and away game of the season will be around the 19th and 20th of September that weekend. Uh, I think 10 wins gets you there. Um, nine wins, you'd need a lot of luck, um, and 11 guarantees you. So we're six and six with five games to go. Um, I think we are a team that can generate enormous momentum. We did that last year to get in the finals and truthfully, we're going to have to do it again to get there. Um, and we play Melbourne, Geelong, West Coast, the next three. So if we make the finals, we're going to be absolutely deserving and, and in some pretty good form and um, we'll see how we go. It's been one of those years. Don't know what to expect. 
No, <laughs> we don't. Hey, um, thank you again. A, a really uh, an absolute um, honour to have you on the show and uh, and hear you hear about your inspiring story. Um, so thanks again, mate, and um, best of luck. Thanks, Blake. Thanks, Nick. How good is that? So he really is doing it, isn't he? He's living out that dream that he had as a kid to be in sport. Yeah. And he's learning as he's going. Like, didn't get all the roles that he thought he wanted, you know, as a, I guess, a more brash, uh, younger lawyer, 23 to 25. He was getting knocked back by cricket, AFL, racing, all these roles that he thought at that point of time he was absolutely the right person for and, you know, took the whack went away, kept working, and eventually the doors started opening for him. Yeah, and he talks about at the end there around volunteering and there's mm. some parallels between what Amit did and what Matty Keenan did in terms of going Definitely. out and continuing to – or being involved through volunteering. And he really – that helped him progress into some of the – earlier roles at St Kilda as an example. Yeah, definitely. And you know, that was a bit of an eye-opener for me to know that the local football team or any sort of sporting club, it is very similar to that of, a, of an elite sports club in terms of the culture and the way it's run. It's just obviously a different sort of scale. Um, and playing sport opened doors for him. So he played sport until he's uh, into his 30s, um, obviously going to different sort of levels uh, that he did when he was uh, younger and met people through those uh, sporting teams and you do form a good bond through uh, team sports and those people ended up working in areas that were helpful to him as far as the network goes. So a lot of good came from participating in, in, a, in a group sport and um, what we're going to get onto next, I suppose, is his mannerisms um, and his approach to, to being a leader uh, unique, I'd say. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's best in class. Like unique, but best in class. Like you look at him, he's he's been patient. He has learnt along the way. He's clearly got high EQ, high emotional intelligence, focused on building a community and genuine care for not only the people within the team, but the broader community that uh, that they support and are, and are building. Yeah, and it's all those little small interactions that he has with people um, that, that make make a big difference. And look, my I, I've known him obviously for, for 40 years, but we don't see each other that often, probably a handful of times um, in the last 20 years, yet he still takes the time to message me uh, for my birthday, which I'm sort of thinking... Every year. Every year. And he must be doing that. I mean, I'm not special, I'm sure. You but, are yeah, special. Well, I am special, thank you. Uh, but he must be doing that to everyone. And so to take the time to interact with all the people that he knows and um, let them know this, that he cares, the way that that must play out in a boardroom, in a corporate setting, must be very different to what, I suppose, the stereotype for, you know, the cutthroat industry CEO, where you're probably imagining they've got to be hard, they've got to be uncompromising, whereas you can imagine a mate can hold a room being the complete opposite of that, being calm being um, you know, considered under pressure. Uh, he reeks of authenticity. That's you, you, 
you hear and you see, um, what you see is what you get. Uh, such a he's clearly a, a really astute businessman, but I think above and beyond for me, my takeout was just his how astute he was uh, as a leader. Hey, by the way, do you do you text a mate back for his birthday or? What do you think? I'm an animal. <laughs> what an animal! Of course, yeah. Happy birthday! Is it, is it today? <laughs> Don't sell me out on my own podcast. Look, he does, and he remains grateful throughout um, his journey. He's, he's he knows exactly where he is and why he is where he is, and maintaining that clarity of purpose. And he, he knows what he's aspiring to do and he's uncompromising in his, in his pursuit of that. I think that's a, a great story. It is a great story. It's, and it's another great story of people doing stuff that they're passionate about and they're purpose-driven, they're purpose-led. And he's not financially driven because you look at someone who works in the legal sphere and he mentions this in the interview, he could be making more money elsewhere. Yet, he's doing what he loves and he understands the financial implications of doing that. Uh, a lot like Nikki Greenberg, uh, it was episode number 15, and they're pursuing something they, they really love. Sounds like that's what it's all about. Uh, pursue something and do something that you love. So, do landers, that's all uh, we have time for. So, we hope that over the next days, weeks and months that you do stuff that you love and that you're passionate about. Uh, if you'd like and think that there's a broader audience that would love to hear these stories of doing, can you please jump on to uh, like, review, rate, tell your friends all about the Doolanders. We'll see you next time. See you, Nick. Bye for now. Hey, Doolanders. If you want to hear more inspiring stories and have this show grow to more and more listeners, do us a favour. Can you like, share, rate and review the Doolander podcast on wherever you, 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 you get your podcast from? Wherever good pods are cast. That's where. <laughs> <laughs>